cross this morning is jewelry, you're wearing a symbol of death. The cross was one of the most inhumane, cruel ways of killing a human being. It was just pure torture. One of the worst ways you could die. And and the Romans were good at it. They would strip criminals completely naked to humiliate them. They would nail their hands and feet to a wooden cross, which was extremely painful because the weight of your body would be on major nerves. That's what would be, be holding your weight. It didn't damage, though, any vital organs, meaning unlike the guillotine or unlike the electric chair, death usually happened very slowly on the cross, sometimes taking days. People actually died on the cross. Eventually, the death was by suffocation, not being able to breathe. The position that you would be held in would would be in a place where you couldn't take breath, so you'd have to pull yourself up to take a breath in the nails that were on those, those nerve, nerves and the painful way of pulling yourself up to, to take a breath and then get back down where you couldn't breathe. And, and you did that until the cramping and pain and fatigue got so bad that a person couldn't push himself up anymore and eventually suffocated to death. If the Romans were merciful, they'd break your legs. They'd break your legs so you couldn't push up and you would suffocate quicker. Often they would leave the body days after death to rot and be eaten by birds. Because Rome used the cross as a symbol. The symbol was, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with the government. It's interesting, in, in, in antiquity, it was considered such a horrible thing, a horrible act, that there, there, it's hard to find a description of it. Even in the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, there's not a clear description of crucifixion. It's not because it was rare in antiquity. The Romans um, used crucifixion all the time. It just was rarely talked about. It was too offensive. It was too cruel. It was too brutal for cultured Greeks or Romans to talk about. They just tried to ignore it. Even the word cross or crucifixion was offensive in those cultures. The cross was a symbol of death. And I often wonder, just if you took someone from antiquity, from Rome, and brought them into modern times, into our day and age, and and they saw crosses everywhere, what would they think? Gold jewelry with crosses, tattoos with crosses, buildings with crosses all over them, right? Going down the, the highway and seeing crosses on the side of the highway, the symbol of death everywhere. And listen, if crucifixion wasn't bad enough, think about this. The Son of God came to earth, which we celebrated last week with so much joy at his birth, right? The whole Old Testament, as we we saw last week, points to this hope of Israel, to this this hope, this man, this hope of, of mankind, the Son of God. We nailed him to the cross. The crucifixion of Christ is the greatest evil ever committed by man. It's a greater evil than any war. It's a greater evil than any genocide. It's a greater evil than than any holocaust. Yet we wear crosses today as symbols of grace, peace, hope, and love. Why is that? Well, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 
26. We're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and here's why the crucifixion of Jesus this morning. When we celebrate Christmas, and I know this is true for me, when I celebrate Christmas, I often forget that Jesus didn't stay a baby. He became an adult. He lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross for our sins. So I want to look at the crucifixion. And, and starting in verse 26, Jesus is on his way to the cross. And if you, if you would follow along with me in verse 26, Luke chapter 23, verse 26, it says this, And as they led him, that's Jesus, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. It's typical for criminals to carry their own crosses, which could weigh up to 100 pounds. Often, and likely in Jesus' case, the pre-crucifixion beating was so bad that the the criminal couldn't physically carry the cross. So a Roman soldier, in verse 26, sees a man at random and forced him, a man named Simon, to carry Jesus' cross. Look at verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. These women... We're mourning for Jesus, and I want to be clear, this isn't Jesus' mom and the female disciples that followed Jesus. Most commentators say this is either one of two groups. Professional mourners who are paid to mourn for the dead, which they had, or pious Jewish women mourning for anyone who had to die the horrific death of the cross, even criminals. My guess is that this, this is pious women, as the, the nation mocked Jesus and demanded his death, these Jewish women mourned for him, probably in a very sympathetic way, yet they weren't true followers. And just as a side note, I feel like the church is full of people like this. I just feel like the church is full of people like this, sympathetic to Christianity, even identify as a Christian and come to church here and there, especially around Christmas time or Easter, but aren't true followers. They just come because they grew up in the church, or they're politically conservative, or they have kids, or they're just culturally Christian. But for whatever reason, they haven't submitted to Jesus and trusted in him as a true follower. They're just sympathetic. I want, to, I want you to hear what Jesus tells these women who are sympathetic towards Jesus. Verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore the the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. This is very similar language to the Olivet Discourse, if you're familiar with that passage in Scripture. Jesus is warning Israel that destruction and judgment is coming. And here's what's happening. I just believe in this moment, Jesus is moved by the compassion and sympathy of these women. So in love, he warns them of judgment. Look at verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is a metaphorical warning. Jesus is saying, you think what Rome is doing to me is bad? I'm like a green piece of wood, an innocent man. Fire doesn't burn a green piece of wood very well. Very well, Jesus is saying, mourn for yourselves because 
what Rome is going to do to you. A dry piece of wood, a guilty nation. I really believe Jesus is warning of a horrific judgment which happened in 70 AD where Rome came in and completely destroyed Israel. Completely destroyed Israel, destroyed the temple, massacred men, women, and children. Bodies laying in the street everywhere. Hundreds of men crucified in one day. Jesus was warning these women of the judgment that was coming. Look at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were laid, or led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see the compassion and love of Jesus? What's happening in this moment when he says this? Verse 33 says, There they crucified him. And he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's probably praying, I think, for the soldiers. Unlike the religious leaders who knew exactly what they were doing, the soldiers were just doing their job. And don't get me wrong, they were sinning. But they were doing what they were ordered to do. And Jesus, as he's getting crucified, has concern for others. I mean, think about that. Jesus at this point is so beat up he can barely walk. With the little energy he has, he, he compassionately warns these mourning women. And as they're nailing his hands and feet to the cross, he prays for the soldiers that are swinging the hammers. That's the Savior we follow. That's the model of love that is our example to love those that hurt us. Look at verse 4 or verse 34. And they, these are the soldiers, cast lots to divide up his garments. This is fulfillment of Psalms 22:18, which it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. That is a thousand years before Christ was born. The prophecy. In verse 35, it says this. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saves others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Again, this is fulfillment of Psalms 22, this time verse 7, which says, All who, who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This is what they say, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They are saying mockingly, he trusts in God, let God save him. Look at verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you are God's chosen one, the Messiah, save yourself. If you are God's, if God truly loves you, won't he save you? Which leads to an interesting question, and I know all these people are mocking Jesus, but where was God the Father during the crucifixion? And so what the religious leaders are asking, again, mocking, verse 35, they say, let, let him save himself, for he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
right? He is God's chosen one, the Christ. He is the Son of God. If God truly loves this man, surely he will be saved. God will stop this. Where was God during this evil, this horrific sin? The greatest evil man has ever witnessed. Where was God? I love how John Piper responds to this question. He says this, To answer a question like that, we should put our hands on our mouths and silent our philosophical speculations. In other words, we should approach this question with all humility. When we talk about God's role or non-role in evil events, especially the crucifixion, the greatest evil that's ever happened, all that counts is what, is what God himself has shown us in his word. And when it comes to the crucifixion, the first thing God shows us is that he knew every detail that would happen. Every detail that would happen. Let me just give you some examples. Scripture showed that evil men would reject Jesus. Psalms 118 said, The stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Scripture showed that Jesus would be hated. John 15, 25, Jesus says, The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. In the, their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He quotes Psalm 35. Scripture showed that all the disciples would abandon Jesus. And Jesus quotes Zechariah 13 by saying, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Mark 14. Scripture showed that Jesus would be pierced. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. That was 700 years before Christ. That was written. In Zechariah 12, 10, it says this, So that when they look at me, on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. That's 500 years before Christ. And Psalms 22, 16 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. That's a thousand years before Christ. A thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. Scripture predicted that Jesus would be beaten to the point of disfigurement. Isaiah 52, 14 predicted that his, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Even Jesus himself predicted down to the details how he would be killed. In Mark 10, 33, Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will uh, condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, verse 34, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Exact details of what happened. God knew exactly what would happen to Jesus. He would be rejected, hated, abandoned, betrayed, condemned, spit upon, flogged, mocked, pierced, and finally killed. God knew it all before any of it happened. And he clearly, being God, had the power to stop it. In Matthew 26, in fact, Jesus tells Peter, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? 
and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? God knew what would happen to Jesus. And God the Father had the power to stop it. But listen, the Bible takes it one step further. God didn't just allow the crucifixion to happen. And this is where people get uncomfortable. So I'm going to let Scripture speak for itself. In Mark 14, 27, Jesus tells the disciples, you will all fall away. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, and this is what he says. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is a prophecy from Zechariah 13, 7, which says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And here's my question. Who is doing the striking? It's clear in Zechariah, it's Yahweh. God is doing the striking. Who is he striking? The shepherd. Zechariah 13.7 says, The shepherd, the man who stands next to me in the ESV, the NASB says this, Against the man, my associate. The Hebrew word could be translated neighbor, near relative, or companion. It literally means the man of my union or my equal. It could be translated, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my equal. It's a clear picture of God the Father striking, crushing God the Son, his shepherd, his equal. But here's where it gets confusing, because when you look at Luke 23, it doesn't seem like God is is the one crushing Jesus. I mean, if anything, the Bible says it's Pilate who sends Jesus to the cross. Or it's Herod who, who could stop it, but he doesn't do anything. He just mocks Jesus and allows it to happen. Or it's the the religious leaders who demand his death. Or it's the Jewish nation that that yell, crucify him, crucify him. Or it's the soldiers who literally drove the nails in his hands and feet. If anything, God the Father just seems absent. Passively allowing at best. Doesn't seem like he was actively striking the shepherd. Well, if you would, turn with me to... Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. I think this passage gives us some insight of what is going on at the crucifixion. Let me just give you some quick context of what's going on in this passage in Acts. The disciples, the apostles, the disciples are praying for boldness. They're facing persecution and they're praying for boldness. In verse 24, it says this, They lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. You know, that's just amazing within itself. People are going to get thrown into prison. Mothers and, and, and fathers. And Stephen is about to get killed, martyred to death, stoned. These disciples are facing heavy persecution. And the first words that come out of their mouth is, God, you're in control. You're in control. I trust you. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, you can do whatever you want, God. You want to stop this persecution? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. That's capital L-O-R-D. That's, that's Yahweh in Psalms. And against his anointed, that's Jesus. Kings, governors, and nations plotting against God and Jesus. God the Father and God the Son. And this is the crucifixion that, that, that Peter is talking about. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's an amazing statement. All the characters surrounding Jesus' death, Herod, Pilate, the Romans, the, the people of Israel, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. John Piper says this, it's a strange way of speaking to say that God's hand and plan have predestined something to happen. One does not ordinarily think of God's hand predestining. How does a hand predestine? Here's what I think it means. The hand of God ordinarily stands for God's applied power. Not power in the abstract, but earthly, effective application of power. The point of combining, combining it with plan is to say that it's not just a theoretical plan is a plan that will be accomplished by God's own hand. Another way of saying it is this, like this. It was by God's hand and plan that he predestined both Herod, Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to crucify Jesus. Which leads to a question. Does it mean that Herod and Pilate aren't responsible for their actions? No, they're responsible. They're responsible. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Because you see something very similar when Peter's preaching in this passage. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. I just hope you see the, the, the apostles' high view of God's sovereignty. This is what they say in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, wonders and signs that God did through him in, in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. The NAS, NASB says predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But look what it says. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see a tension there? God is sovereign. It's the predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and foreknowledge of God. Man is responsible. You crucified and killed. The Bible is clear throughout that man is responsible for his action and choices. He is free. Yet, at the same exact time, God is sovereign even over man's choices. How can that be? I don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. I don't know. There's a tension, and we shouldn't try to undo this tension by our philosophical guesses 
Piper says we should put our hands over our mouth and let Scripture speak for itself. And Scripture clearly says it's both. It's both. So maybe the better question is this. Why would God the Father do this? Why would God the Father do this? Why would he crush his son? Why would he have Jesus crucified? If you were, would, turn with me to Isaiah 53, verse 2. Isaiah 53, verse 2. In Christmas season, I think probably the two books that are quoted the most during Christmas is Luke being one of them and then Isaiah being another one. Isaiah 53, 2. Look what it says. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is talking about Jesus. He had no form nor majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus didn't come looking like a king. He came from a family of a father that was a lowly carpenter, a nobody, born in a manger. Just think about that. The Son of God, the King of Kings, born in a manger, in a stable, as we celebrate with animals. His statue and appearance was nothing special. That's the Christmas story right there in verse 2. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs, grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But why? The question is why. And I just, this morning, if you're visiting and you came with family just because your family is Christians and you're a skeptic of some sort, I just want to tell you that verse 4 and on was written a thousand years before Jesus. This is amazing because it's obviously talking about Jesus. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have all sinned. Therefore the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. In other words, God the Father actively made Jesus pay the price of sin we owed so that we could have peace, so that we could be healed, so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven. The religious leaders, Pilate and Herod, they all just wanted Jesus to be dead. They just wanted to get rid of him. They committed the greatest evil and sin that man has ever witnessed. But at the exact same time, by God's hand and plan, God used this great evil to bring the greatest good man has ever witnessed. Man intended evil, the greatest evil ever. God intended good, the greatest good. Listen, that's why you wear crosses today. That's why you wear crosses today as symbols of grace, peace, hope, and love. 
Man used the cross to torture, kill, and murder the Son of God. God used the cross to save. To save. And only God could do this. Only a sovereign, good, wise, all-powerful God could take a symbol as horrific as the cross and make it beautiful. And make it beautiful. Listen, God was there at the crucifixion, just like he was there at the birth, just like he was there through Jesus' life, actively working to save sinners. Which leads us back to Luke. If you would, turn back to Luke 23, verse 38. I really wanted to preach on the crucifixion again because I think we forget about the rest of Jesus' life during the Christmas season. I love the fact that we have the, the manger on one side with Jesus in red and the cross on the other side with the red tying them together. I wanted to end this sermon, I just want to end this Christmas season about a story of two criminals. Look at verse 38. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the, the Christ? Save yourself and us. Right? This criminal is mocking Jesus. And just like atheists mock Christians. Where is God? I don't see him. Look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And look what this criminal says. And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. This is the criminal as he's hanging on the cross. This is what I deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He was declaring Jesus' innocence. And if you know the story really well, my guess is there was three criminals that, that did a, uh, some kind of act together. And the middle criminal was let go, free, because Jesus took his place on the cross. It was someone else's cross. And he said to Jesus, look at verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal was forgiven. Right? There's two men here, and I, I really believe these two men illustrate two options that face every single person that's walked the face of this earth. There's only two types of people. There's only two options this morning. Those who believe in Jesus, put their trust in him, and are saved, like the one criminal, and those, like the other criminal, who reject Jesus, who mock Jesus, and who will face eternal judgment. Which one are you this morning? If you don't know Jesus, this is the time. Listen. I know this is a heavy sermon a week after Christmas, but this is what it's all about. I mean, for us that are saved, for us that have put our faith in Jesus, the cross is glorious. We should be joy-filled that Jesus took our place on that cross. If you don't know Jesus this morning, put your faith in him. Trust in him. I don't know why you're here. 
God does. He's sovereign. He's in control. Maybe you're just here with some friends and family. I don't know. Put your faith in him. Accept the free gift of grace that God is offering this morning. This is what I'd like to do. We're going to close in prayer. But before we do that, I just want to ask the elders if you would come up. Let's see. I see Will. It's Mike. Oh, Mike. Mike. Mike and Mike. Matt and Jim. Hey, these are the pastors of our church. These are godly men. If you don't know Jesus and you, and you want to know him, it's between you and God, but these men can, can tell you and, and, and tell you about him and what it means to accept that free grace of gift. Please come and talk with them. God has laid it on your heart. I'd also say this. I know Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving, this time of season, it's just a hard time of season for some people. If you're struggling, these men would love to pray for you. Spin her up here to pray for you and be with you. As we get up and start greeting and stuff and you want to sneak over there and, and talk with them, please do that this morning. Okay, if you would, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that Jesus didn't just stay a baby, God. That you protected him from, from men that were trying to kill him when he was a baby, Lord that you guided him, that you were with him, Lord, as he lived his perfect life, Lord, not sinning once, and that you were there on the cross, Lord. It says in Isaiah, it pleased you to crush him because that meant salvation for us. It's a remarkable thought, Lord. God, I pray that we celebrate today as we take in the Lord's Supper and communion and we reflect on on the cross and what you have done for us on the cross by sending your Son, Lord, to die for our sins. Lord, I pray that we are joy-filled, knowing that he didn't stay in the ground, that you raised him on the third day and that he is alive today as King of King and Lord and Lords, and he will come back one day, God, for us. God, I pray that we are continuously joy-filled, Lord, because of that. With all the hard circumstances that are around us, Lord, that we pray, Sovereign Lord, we know you are in control, and you are good, and we can trust you. Be with us in this season and this morning. In your son's name, amen.